Good morning. I think that song will go very nicely with this message today. When I tell you that we're in Mark chapter 12 and you see the title of the message, you might not think so, because what the passage is usually preached on, but by the end of the message, I think you'll see it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start with in verse 41. This is the... uh, this is a story that's usually called the widow's mites. Uh, before we get into the story, though, I have to set the stage because it's helpful, but it'd also be educational. The story takes place in, a t- in the temple, and I want us to get a feeling of what it was like to be there as we look at a short passage about a woman who went there. She was poor but she went to put a few cents in the treasury. Now, this story has been used to promote people to give at church. That is not my subject today, and we don't talk about that, right, Adel? Yeah. I I hope that you see when I get done that these few verses are not primarily about giving money, although it is involved. Someday I'd like to go to Israel and see Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, I'd like to go to the Temple Mount and see where it was that Solomon built that first magnificent temple to God and his people. Solomon spared no expense for the building's creation. He ordered vast quantities of cedar wood. I love the smell of cedar. He ordered from the Hiram, king of Tyre, And he had huge blocks of the choicest stone quarried and commanded that the building's foundation be laid with hewn stone. And to complete this massive project, he imposed forced labor on all his non-Jewish subjects. These were people that he had conquered, drafting people for work shifts that sometimes lasted a month at a time. Some 3,300 officials were appointed to oversee the temple's erection. And Solomon paid... Hiram, king of Tyre, 20 cities in Galilee for all of the materials that he gave him. And that temple was used for about 400 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And then 70 years later, a number of Jews returned to Israel, led by the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah, and the second temple was built on the same site. But it was not as glorious as the first temple, was it? For those of you who know the story. But then in about 19 BC, Herod the Great, who was appointed the ruler over the land at that time, he rebuilt that temple on a magnificent scale. He, like many other rulers back in that time, had a lot of building projects kind of left a legacy for their name. These are powerful men who could uh, do quite a bit. So he adorned many cities and erected many heathen temples. And was, But it was not fitting that the temple that was in the capital of his area should be lesser in its grandeur than the other places. So he wanted to rebuild the temple. And I think also that if you look at history... He often made the religious leaders of the Jews upset, and so I think he was trying to appease them as well. The problem was is that the temple building itself was not very grand, and 
he wanted to take that down and rebuild it from the ground up. And the Jews were not very happy about that because they were, they feared it might not be rebuilt. So what he did to demonstrate good faith was he accumulated all the materials beforehand before the old one was taken down to show that he was ready to do what he said. And uh, they, they did it in about a year and a half. Um, but Herod was not just done with the temple. He, um, he really wanted to make it uh, magnificent. So if you're not familiar with the, the temple, it was built on Mount Moriah. You look back in history, Mount Moriah is the place where God asked Abraham to take his son Isaac to sacrifice, right? Herod had grand plans, and so he pulled down the temple, and then what he did, it was like he took um, Mount Moriah, it was like if you take a shoebox and you turn it upside down and you set it up on top of the mountain, so you have this huge flat surface, it's like four and a half football fields, <coughs> and then you put the temple in the middle of it, that's where he was going with this. He really wanted to do something big. That flat platform is what you call the Temple Mount, and it's still there today. I don't have time to go in all the temple, but I'd like to just point out one thing that uh, kind of connects a little bit with the story that we're we're going to look at. Um, Ed, can you put up the uh, picture? One of the prominent features of the temple was were the gates which were necessary because the temple was not a place that just anybody could go. There were limitations. So when you look at the picture there, you'll see the temple proper sitting up in the back. It's got actually kind of a cross shape to it. And then to the right of it, there's a courtyard. And then there are gates around the, all around the walls of the temple there. And what you can't see in this picture is that big, huge platform area that goes out all different, all the, all the ways of the, of the temple itself. And it's surrounded, uh, in the perimeter of that big platform or colonnades all the way around. And that area was not necessarily what you would call holy ground, so to speak. And any foreigner or Gentile could come into that area. But when they got to the steps of what you see there, a non-Jewish person could not go any further. Okay? So there were gates that you had to go through to get into the whole area itself, and then gates you had to go through to get into the temple area itself. I don't know if you, anybody here knows who Alfred Edersheim is, but he was a Jew that got converted to Christianity, and he wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a fascinating commentary because he really brings the Jewish perspective into of the whole thing. It's a good reference book to use when you're trying to study a passage and understand Jewish culture or politics. But he says these eight gates, the eight of them, as we may call them, were all two-leaved. They were double-door. They were wide and high with superstructures and chambers supported by two pillars and covered with gold and silver plating. But far more magnificent than any of them was the ninth gate, or the, what we call the eastern gate, which formed the principal entrance into the temple. 
And you can't see it in this picture, but if you stand on the right side of the screen, so to speak, and look at that wall, that's where this gate is. The ascent to the gate was uh, formed by a terrace of 12 easy steps. The gate itself was made of dazzling Corinthian brass, mostly richly ornamented and so massive were its double doors that it needed the united strength of 20 men to open and close them. Pretty incredible, huh? I want you to really get the, the, the feel for just how big and magnificent the place this was. The, ba- the gate itself was, the, all the gates had names. Useful, so you can tell somebody, I'll meet you at gate blah, 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 right? This gate was called Beautiful. This gate led into the area we're going to focus on. It was one of the courts in the temple. So if you see the temple there up in the upper left hand of the screen and you look right, there's a courtyard there. So that gate led into this courtyard. That court is called the Court of Women. The Court of Women um, is an area in the temple complex that was closed to non-Jewish people or what we call Gentiles, but open to Jewish women. But that was because this was as far as the women could go. Jewish men could congregate there as well, but they could also move into the, through the next gate to the court of Israel, and then past that only the Levites or the priests could go into the temple area itself. Well, what that means is the court of women turned out to be the place in the temple where all Israelites could gather and worship if they wanted. Thus, it naturally became the place where Jesus spoke, where he taught in the temple. When it talks about he was speaking in the temple, this is where he was. It was there his enemies found him sitting and teaching one morning when they came dragging a woman in who had been taken in adultery during the preceding night. One of the notable features of the court of women was the treasury. There were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles placed there to receive the offerings for the maintenance of the temple and its ministry, but I'll get to that in a bit. Because people were coming there from everywhere, they often had coins from other places. And those coins often had engravings of political leaders and images from mythology that the Jews would have considered idolatrous, and they would not want those things in uh, being given in the treasury. For this reason, that's why they had the money changers. You probably remember the story of the money changers, right? The money changers, they were there to uh, provide acceptable coinage for the offerings. Since they were not expected to work for free, the money exchangers would, uh, their exchange would involve a measure of profit for them. Be the same like going to the airport today when you get off the plane in another country like I have in Brazil. You go to a money exchange and you change your American money for Brazilian hay eyes and you pay a price to do that. So, yes, you remember these are the money changers that Jesus cleared out of the temple one time, or maybe it was twice. So we're going to read a story today where you will see that the Lord was thrilled by something that took place in this court. His heart was very touched, and no doubt what he saw brought joy to his heart. So he had been speaking in the temple in the previous verses um, But now he stops, and in verse 41, Mark 12, verse 41, it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. 
<coughs> and many rich people <coughs> were putting in large sums. If you remember in that court of women, there's a colony or a series of columns all around the perimeter. Okay? This is where they were going to put their money. Behind those columns against the wall um, in the courtyard there, there were um, 13 what you would call uh, treasure chests, but they didn't look like a normal treasure chest. They had kind of a, a funnel on them that came up to a narrow point that you put the money in. It looked kind of like a trumpet on top of a box. And each one of these boxes was carefully marked, nine of them for the receipt of what was legally due by the worshippers, and the other four were for strictly for voluntary gifts. It's this kind of uh, place that Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, verse 2. He says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So you imagine Jesus, he's sitting in that courtyard and he's looking towards some of those uh, treasure chests and people are putting the money in there. And imagine a number of rich people. It says there were many. And maybe some of these they were giving and they were trying to outdo the other people, you know. They made a big show of putting the money in the chest. Now, see how much money I'm putting in? See how big my coins are? And of course, there are people who are easily impressed by that, aren't they? But as Jesus sat there, he was watching one solitary figure. She comes in through the gate and proceeds to one of the trumpet chests. She probably had to stand in line and wait for her turn to give. It says in verse 42 that she was a poor widow. She's a woman without a husband to care for her. It's probably evident by her clothes that though they may be clean, they're not the clothes of a rich person. They're simple and probably worn. I read a number of commentators on this, and all the commentators say this, that she must have been ashamed to be among the rich and in this grand, magnificent place with people who had so much money when she had so little. They picture her as walking with her head down, her shoulders rolled forward like someone who did not belong there. I can see that the commentators can come to this conclusion, but I have a hard time agreeing with it, and I think... You'll see that too when we get to it. So let's look at the rest of the verses in Mark 12, starting in verse 42. A poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. The rich, 
They had tons of money. They had excess. Giving a lot didn't bother them, didn't affect them. They acted like it did. They made a big deal out of it because they want the praise of men and aren't humans like that. We want the approval of other people, right? But did you notice how much he said she gave? The first thing he says is that she put in more than all of them put together. And you think, well, how can he say that? What kind of math is he using? When is two cents greater than $200 or $2,000? Well, you know, when God does a miracle, he basically overrides physical laws, doesn't he? Well, when God calculates how much a person gives, he uses a different kind of calculator than we do. That's a calculator that's a little more complicated than ours, but it's more accurate. It takes the quantity of the money and then divides it by the net worth of the giver and multiplies it by the attitude of the giver, which is a numerical value that's been assigned. Let's do the calculations. I'm going to keep the numbers simple because I'm not great at math, but I do have an appreciation for it. Let's say one of these rich guys gives $100. And let's say he has a net worth of $100,000. But he's got an attitude of minus 100000 because he desires to be praised by men. So let's see, 100 over 100000 equals 0. 0.001 times negative 100000 equals Negative 100. Oh. God has no respect for those who try to use him for their own glory, does he? <laughs> now let's calculate the widow's gift. So her, each one of her coins is worth a penny, we say. So we take two cents divided by her net worth of two cents, and that equals one. But you multiply that times an attitude rating of one million, and you easily see how she gave much more than the others even all of them put together. Yeah, some of you are looking at me kind of funny, right? <laughs> Don't you know how God's calculator works? I think you get the point. His further explanation of her giving just further supports these calculations, though. What does he say next? He says, she put in all she owned. And you just got to pay attention whenever the scripture uses that word all, Right? And because Jesus wants us to be clear on what he's saying, he adds to the words, he says, all she had to live on. He's made it very clear. Now, people just go berserk when they see this kind of uh, devotion to God. Even many Christians. There's all kind of whinings and excuses given and, and reasons why they never could do something like that. Well, first of all, God does not call all of his people to give everything like that, okay? But what if he did, though? What if it were true that all believers were supposed to give all that they had? Would that mean suddenly millions of Christians all over the world would suddenly do without because it would be too much of a problem for God to handle? Do you think God is unable to take care of all of us? He could do it with one arm tied behind his back and blindfolded. 
Secondly, don't you think God deserves all for what he's done? I tell you, when we get to heaven, you will be convinced if you're not right now. When you see him as he is, you'll realize had you tried to outgive him in this life, you would have lost. Now, the outsider who doesn't necessarily understand this is going to say, she's crazy. She's a religious nut and she's been brainwashed. How could she do that? What would possess a person to give all they had to God? The problem with the outsider is they never try to really answer that question. They assume that they're right. But if you look at it academically, you have to ask the question, well, either she is nuts or she knows something that they don't. So which is it? Is she nuts or does she know something the others don't? That'll make it a little harder. This must have been a habit of hers to do this and to live like this. Because if this is just a one-time thing, Jesus would not have made a big deal out of it. But he makes a big deal, and he, he, when he commends people, it's real, it's genuine. You think about the time he met Philip. He said, here comes a man in whom there is no guile. And you have to think, what was this woman's life like on the other day she was not in the temple? I think she gave her all in many areas, don't you? But let's put this to the test. Go up to her in the temple and ask her a question. Why in the world would you put all the money you have in the treasury? Do you know how she would respond? She'd look at you kind of funny and say, because it's the right thing to do. And this begins to get in where I disagree with the commentators who said she went into the temple with her head down, shuffling her feet, and feeling generally intimidated by being in such a grand place with all those rich people. You see, a person who had her level of trust in God, and that's what we're talking about, does not look like they're feeling out of place and all intimidated by a bunch of arrogant rich people. Now, be careful now. There are humble rich people too. I'm not picking on the rich. Just those who try to use their money for their own glory. She walked into the temple with confidence. This is the place of her God. She belongs here. She knew him well. Ever since she came to know him, he has never let her down. And there she goes. You, She's walking by. She's leaving the temple. And you can hear her singing that song. This is my father's world. Don't you love that song? I love that song. That third stanza says, This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. I believe that was her attitude. She does not have excess, but she's not hurting either. I imagine it has come to her mind many times that sometimes when you have too much, it makes you complacent and forget about where you got it from. Let's ask her some more questions, though. 
aren't you worried about not having anything to eat? Or your clothes wearing out? What are you going to do? She answers, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about my life as to what I will eat or what I will drink, nor for my body as to what I will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet my heavenly Father feeds them. Am I not worth much more than they? And can I by being worried add a single hour to my life? And as for my clothing, well, think about it. Think about how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe me? No, I'm not worried. He is faithful. Those are the words of a woman with a great God. How big is your God? The woman did what was right. Good character and right living means you do what is right, even at your own expense. You choose principle over profit. Think of how many books and movies that are out there about people who, at great cost to themselves, chose to do what was right while the majority did not. One of those movies, you know, I bring this up often, it's my favorite, Chariots of Fire. Among other things that Eric Little did in the movie is um, he was favored to run a sprint race in the Olympics. But because it was going to be run on Sunday and he would be on church on Sunday, he told him he couldn't do it. And he stood his ground despite the fact that a lot of people gave him a hard time. They told him, you're favored to win. Why would you not do it? What's just one day? But he not, so what he does is he runs a race that he doesn't usually run. It's a longer race, but he wins. And he not only wins, but he sets a record. Coincidence or providence? What do you think? I love the movie It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart about a man who could have run off to the big city and made his fortune, but stayed in his little town and made more than just money. Things you cannot put a value on. What I love about this story is not what it teaches me about giving money. What I love about this story is what God loves, and that was her trust in him. Alistair Begg had some comments about this little story. He's the Scottish preacher, you know. I'd love to listen to that man talk. He says, some have given what they will never miss. She has given ex- extravagantly what she could never afford the very means that sustain her life, thereby saying, I trust you, God, with everything. I am absolutely committed to you. Alistair Begg says, this is the true definition of being all in. Hmm? And Jesus can relate to being all in, can't he? 
That's exactly what he did when he went to the cross for us. He was all in. And that's why he holds those in high esteem who have the same attitude and the same commitment. Well, let's just press her with another question to see how far she goes on this. Let's ask her about losing everything and maybe even coming close to dying. How do you deal with that? She looks at you and says, remember Job? I agree with him. He said, though he slay me, though he slay me, though he slay me, I will trust him. Wow. You'll notice that Job's words were recorded in in the book and her story was recorded in the book that's been around for thousands of years. Not too many people can claim that, can they? She continues by saying to you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. She goes on and she says, think about this. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yes, sparrows are one of the cheapest things you can buy, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. He knows when one of them falls, and he cares. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now she's ministering to you. She continues, don't feel bad for me. I am not poor like you think. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I am rich beyond measure. Don't let my appearance and my lack of possessions fool you. Yeah, people can think of a hundred reasons why she should not give all to God, but he can think of a thousand ways he's going to take care of her. We really fail at times to see how much the Almighty really cares about us, really loves us. And I think it makes them sad when we behave like that. And we go further and we get angry about things that happen to us. And we blame him. Some have even decided that he doesn't exist because of what happens here in this world. There are so many things, so many times we have no idea why God allows things to happen as they do. But I'll never forget this piece of insight from Bill McDonald. He said, if you knew what God knows, you would do the same as he does. You would make the same decisions he does. You would allow the things he allows. Some of you are listening to me and you're saying, no way, I'd never do that. I think all of you know what a pie chart is, right? Graphical representation that shows percentages of a whole, right? We take a pie chart, and let's say that pie chart represents all the knowledge in the universe. Now, I want you to draw a slice in that pie that represents how much of that knowledge you know. Now, if you can actually draw a slice, I would be very surprised. You're either very ignorant, very arrogant, or you're very ignorant about how much knowledge there really is. 
Now, if you put a dot on that pie, now you're getting close. Now you're getting close. And that's why I say there are so many times we have no idea why God allows things happen the way they do. But if you knew what he knows, you would do the same as he does. And that is why this woman trusted him so much. She may not be rich or have a college degree, ah, but she knows the one who knows everything and has everything and controls everything, and that's all she needs. She had a right view of God. And I would mention that today she is in his presence and she has no regrets. I love the writings of A.W. Tozer. Um... And I love the book he wrote, The Knowledge of the Holy. And before you think that that is a terribly (laughs) theology book, um, let me just read just a little bit for you, just to show you. Um, There's something that he says here that I think is very significant. The first chapter is titled, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. And here are a few lines from the first page that really caught my attention. He says, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most serious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his depth of his heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but the company of Christians that compose a church. Always the most revealing thing about a church is her idea of God. How big is our God? Personally, this concept has just consumed me, and and when I think of my spiritual gifts and my opportunities to minister to people, The one thing I really want to do is help people to see God as he really is, and I want to see him as he really is. I'm not always successful, but that's my desire. You want to develop good character? You want a closer walk with God? You want to be a better witness? You want, what is it you want? If it's not working out so well, it may be affected by your view of God. I want to just cover one little piece of the um, of the passage we looked at here in uh, verse 43. The first five words says, calling his disciples to him. That's what he did, right? He was watching the woman and he, and he called his disciples to him. And I said, how did he do that? What tone of voice did he use? At what rate did he say the words? What emphasis did he use? How did Jesus say that? How did he call them? And the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly but we get an idea uh, by all that he said. How did he feel about what she did? While everyone was watching the rich and listening to the abundance of their heavy coins dropping into the chest, he was listening to the sound of her two tiny coins. And they made a noise in his heart that would shake the world, if you could hear it. And he thought, this is a woman who completely trusts me. She has shown me by how much She has shown me how much I mean to her by what she did. And so I imagine that Jesus, as he was watching this woman, he said, Peter, James, John, he used to call them children, come here, quick. I want you to see something. You can't miss this. 
Chances are they had noticed her, but they were like everyone else. They're paying attention to the rich. But he showed them something that they should never forget, and neither should we. And that is why this woman would never want to do anything to break his heart, but only to bring joy to him. The question is, am I bringing joy to his heart? I love this story. It really caught my attention. I've never forgotten it. I always think about it because it's Jesus getting excited about something, and I always want to pay attention to something like that. So everyone wants to call the story the widow's mites. But it's not about money, is it? I hope you can see that now. It's about how much God can be trusted. And this widow obviously trusted him with more than two coins. I think it would be better to call it the widow's faith or maybe be all in for God. Amen? Lord, we thank you this morning that you shared this with us in your word. We want to get excited about what you get excited about, Lord. But even more, we want to bring joy to your heart. Pray, Lord, that this story will not be forgotten by any of us anytime soon. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.